This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the shortages of children's pain medications and liquid amoxicillin and how that is exacerbating the crisis in a hospital emergency care. But it's not only kids' drugs that are in short supply. Hundreds of medications are in short supply, including 23 that are considered critical. A third of prescription drugs are on back order, and there are problems getting some adult over-the-counter cough and cold syrup, eye drops, and even some oral antibiotics. Libby spoke with a panel of experts about the situation on Wednesday, starting with pharmacist John Papasturgio. It's not great right now, but, uh, you know, my, my biggest concern really is the over-the-counter shortages that we're experiencing, primarily with the uh, children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Uh, why is that so important? Because, you know, we try to manage low-grade fevers with kids, uh, typically, uh, you know, in the home, uh, you know, through the advice of a pharmacist and prevent them from having to go to urgent care or kind of walk-in clinics or, or worst-case scenario, the emergency room. But when you don't have access to those medications, the problem is, you know, parents start to get real nervous. They can't control the fever. Fever's been up for two or three days, and inevitably they go seek uh, alternative care. And I think that's my biggest concern, and that's what I'm spending a lot of time on uh, right now, trying to kind of, uh, you know, better best educate patients, give them some advice on what to do. Uh, the other shortages, uh, they're there. Many have been kind of, we've had, we've experienced shortages over the last year and a half, two years, many of them pandemic related supply issues. I think globally, uh, we're seeing this as well. Uh, more concerning recently is the, the antibiotic shortages, the children's antibiotic uh, liquid shortages, uh, primarily amoxicillin and azithromycin. I mean, uh, you know, they are very, very high demand products with kids, kids that have strep. Uh, you know, ear infections, things like that. We, you know, upper respiratory uh, bacterial infections. Obviously, they're very, very important class of medications. Those have been coming in sporadically, though, so the, su- the supply has been uh, inconsistent. I think though, it's important for the listeners that not every infection is treated with an antibiotic, and particularly now, what we're seeing circulating are not bacterial infections or things like RSV, COVID, influenza, A and B starting to circulate. So, you know, we, we've got to also, uh, you know, define when we need to use antibiotics and when we I don't. I know, that's a big uh, deal because you don't want to have antibiotic resistance. And now let's bring in Angelique Berg, President and CEO of the Canadian Association for Pharmacy Distributing Management, and Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, the Hannah Chair of the History of Medicine at Queen's University and Tracker of Drug Shortages on her website, canadadrugshortage.com. What is the issue about uh, a lack of manufacturing capacity here at home versus ordering from elsewhere? 
um, specific to the the infant or the pediatric analgesic and um, shortages, we actually don't usually have a problem. It works quite well. We have manufacturers that manufacture here in Canada, and we haven't had this kind of shortage before, so it usually works. Um, we might need to consider, <clears throat> excuse me, amplifying that um, that manufacturing capacity in the future. But so much has changed in the pandemic. I think we're all observing and watching and really trying to take some lessons from this and planning how to do this better in the future. Uh, okay, let us bring in Dr. Jacqueline Duffin. So you keep track of what is in shortage. I try to. I've been doing this since 2010. Uh, when my patients in the cancer clinic here in Kingston couldn't obtain a simple old remedy to control nausea. And I've been trying to find out what the causes are of drug shortages. I, I would like your listeners to know that in addition to the problems we have with uh, kids' Tylenol right now, we have over 1,800 drugs in short supply in Canada right now. This one is particularly poignant because it's widespread, it's obvious because it's over the counter and we see the empty shelves, and because we're all worried about our kids. But when this gets solved, I hope people remember that there are chronic ongoing drug shortages that we need to better understand. There is significant opportunity to improve the supply chain stability and viability in Canada, and we really do need to take a hard look at what the issues are, what are the common issues that we can solve, and how we can strengthen the delivery of medications to Canadians, maintaining that safe, secure, and um, expansive supply and access across Canada, and yet with an eye to the future, really building for Canadians to meet their demands and meet what they need. Angelique Berg, President and CEO of the Canadian Association for Pharmacy Distribution Management. Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, Hannah Chair of the History of Medicine at Queen's University and Tracker of Drug Shortages at CanadaDrugShortage.com. And before them, pharmacist John Papasturgio. They were in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Wednesday was also World COPD Day. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a progressive lung condition that, according to COPD Canada, affects as many as 384 million people and is the third leading cause of death globally. Here in Canada, according to Statistics Canada, there are over 830,000 people who've been diagnosed with COPD. What is this disease all about and how best to manage it? Libby was joined by Henry Roberts, member of the Executive Committee at COPD Canada. Our members in COPD are generally hunkered down when the uh, pandemic hit. But they were broadsided by uh, all kinds of other issues. Uh, for, for example, we've got a survey that was published by the Spanish uh, equivalent of COPD Canada that looked at the impact of COVID on COPDers. Uh, you can find the full report on our website, copdcanada.info forward slash 76. But I'll read a few things out of the report just to summarize the impact of COVID on COPD is 73.3% of the patients surveyed indicated that their COPD had worsened during the pandemic. 62% reported a worsening of shortness of breath. 82% of the patients uh, felt that concern for their respiratory health had increased. 
79.2% of patients surveyed indicated that the pandemic had greatly worsened their sleep quality. 83% feel depressed and unwilling to do anything. And it goes on and on and on and on. So it's not the catching of the COVID virus. It's the impact of the pandemic on the quality of life of COPDers. Well, that was my question. Now, this is people who had COPD, but what happened if on on top of it, they got COVID? They would be very, very ill and would likely die. And what about, uh, can can COVID or long COVID lead to COPD? I don't think there's a direct correlation. COPD is primarily caused by the inhalation of smoke. Cigarette smoking is the big cause. Um, we're involved with the global committee to increase awareness. They're the part of this uh, global awareness campaign. And there was a report in the Lancet that was published by the UK-based group. And uh, it indicated that smoke and pollution are soon to overtake COP- or cigarette smoking as the major cause of COPD. Now, that's more of a third world issue than in Canada. But if we look at the forest fires that we're experiencing, imagine if you lived in the Okanagan Valley, you had COPD and you were living with that smoke, which in particular has very fine airborne particulates, which is uh, extremely damaging to the lungs. Okay, so it is mostly the result of smoking, certainly here in Canada. it, It certainly is. Yeah, that's the primary cause. And and incidentally, uh, uh, environmental uh, airborne particulates. Yeah, I'd like to mention that, that a lot of the people in Canada are rural, and uh, and they use wood to cook and heat, and that wood burning it also uh, releases particulates that damage the lung. In general, is there any key for managing it aside from being on top of it? Fermenting COPD. Or yeah, there is. You have to, <laughs> you have to take your medicines as prescribed. You have to avoid t- triggers, uh, uh, things like uh, chemicals, household chemicals. You have to avoid being in a room full of smoke or avoid cigarette smokers. If you can get into pulmonary rehab or any kind of online exercise program, do it. Um, be cognizant of the weather. Cold weather can be particularly hard on people with COPD in that the cold air that you breathe in constricts already compromised airway passages. So the cold weather for a healthy person, it's no big deal. But for someone who already has trouble breathing, it can be quite serious. Uh, you stay away from anybody who's got a cold because that virus will create mucus and a lot of the the COPD, the chronic bronchitis, that's one of the uh, uh, main effects of, of that is the increased mucus production. It's been described to me as drowning in your own phlegm when they get up in the morning. Go to our website, copdcanada.info, and share the information that's there with anybody who smokes. If they smoke, your friends, get them to quit smoking. That, that would be the, the main message. Henry Roberts, member of the Executive Committee at COPD Canada. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, understanding what's involved in the Ford Tories sweeping new housing legislation and what it means for cities. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The governing Ford PCs at Queen's Park have introduced new legislation that would give them a tighter grip over regional governance, in addition to providing the mayors of both Ottawa and Toronto greater powers, allowing those mayors to pass bylaws aligned with the government's priorities with just a third of council's support. The provincial Tories say they want to do this to cut back on bureaucracy when it comes to confronting priority issues such as new housing. Libby discussed the sweeping legislation with our tune into the town panel on Thursday. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor at Blog TO. Karen Stintz is the CEO at Variety Village. And David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. Interestingly, David wrote a piece in the Toronto Star this past week, which argues that the Ford government's More Homes Built Faster Act does a disservice to municipalities. Libby asked David about this first. I think that it's probably the most... uh a destructive piece of legislation to come in some time dealing with local government in Ontario. First of all, let me, let me make a comment, if I could, about the process. When Bill 23 came down, uh, and even recently with the minority vote on council to pass things came as well, with an assumption this was done by the province on its own, and that somehow it's interesting to see what would happen when Mayor Tory uh, would respond to it. He didn't respond to it. We find out now the reason he did is he was in on it. He was actually part of it. Uh, in fact, for, from his point of view, he, he thinks it's a good idea. What's interesting to note is we just went through an election. No one said anything. No one said a note. This is a major alteration in local government and its relationship with the province, and not a not a word, not a syllable from the mayor who who should have been out there defending our interests. Let's move on to Karen, of course, a former city councillor. What would you add, agree, disagree with that? Yeah, I agree with David, actually. And, and, and I think it's actually a dangerous position for Tory to take, to be candid, um, because, you know, there is going to be a, a significant disenfranchisement from people of the city around how their neighbourhoods get built. And if Tory declares something of provincial interest and only needs a third of council, he basically tells the community, your opinions on this development don't matter. And the developer then knows that the community's opinions don't matter. And even though there's a lot of thinking about NIMBY, in reality, a lot of really good decisions get made when the community is involved in the process. And now the community is effectively being shut out because they don't matter. They really don't. And, you know, um, just on the practical side, if Tory can't convince 13 of his colleagues to support something, right? Like, that's an issue. Well, and, and, and he has always in the he's past. He's always had a majority. But, okay, so, so here's the thing, and I want to throw this to Lauren, because possibly you have a different perspective on it. Uh, and I've said this before. These days, it seems the worst thing that you can be called is a NIMBY. And the mayor, in justifying his participation in this, said he did this to get rid of NIMBYism. I've talked about heritage preservation, and I've 
had, you know, esteemed professors say, oh, that is just an excuse for people to be NIMBYs and not allow development. And I've also, as I've said, full disclosure, I, I rejoined my local ratepayers group. And it's the same uh, attitude to that. You want to get involved in your community, and it's because you're a NIMBY. And uh, we need to override democracy, I guess, to stop the attack of the NIMBYs. I suppose so. No, I don't suppose so. That I completely disagree with that because it's not just taking power away from community groups to appeal developments at the Ontario Land Tribunal. It's taking power away from conservational group, conservationist groups like how is that nimbyism if you don't want a new development to pave over um, an area of ecological significance? And, and with the heritage buildings, too, as I think anyone who appreciates architecture in this city and the history and culture of this city knows, there's a lot more going on behind preserving our past and our beautiful structures from other times than just like keeping apartments out of the area. Like it's so much more important than that. And and so I think the argument that this is just to prevent NIMBYism is is a very false one. And I also don't really think that Tory even seems to have as much of a say in this as as Ford does. It's like some people are just calling this a power grab by the provincial government, by Ford specifically. And I mean, that's what it looks like from an outsider. I obviously don't have the experience um, of the other two panelists who are very smart people who know politics, but I, I just, from the outside, I mean, it does look like an attack on democracy. Libby's conversation on Thursday with our Tune Into the Town panel. David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor at Blog TO. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The ability to afford to put food on the table is a growing problem for more Canadians. The latest Who's Hungry report shows that food bank visits are on the rise. Nearly 1.7 million visits were recorded in Toronto during the latest reporting period, which is a 16% increase from last year, also a record high. On Tuesday, Libby talked about the concerning issue with Neil Hetherington, CEO of Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. The numbers are, are dramatic. This year, over the last 12 months, we will have served uh, just 1.99 million uh, client visits. Um, so that on its own uh, is, is uh, difficult to, uh, to know. But the depth of, of poverty that is out there uh, surprised me sadly. Um, it was much more stark than I than I had anticipated. For example, this report talks about uh, of people that are going to food banks. Eighteen percent of them, you know, one in five, uh, are um, are spending at least are, are spending a hundred percent of their income on rent. Um, they are completely dependent on friends, family, and charity for everything. Whether uh, for 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 their clothes, for their food for their transportation. And and so we are seeing a very difficult situation uh, across the city. Um, and we're, we're uh, forecasting actually even grimmer news. You know, when I, if you and I get to talk next year, sadly, our forecast is that we will be beyond a quarter million per month coming to the Daily Bread Food Bank. Uh, you talk about people being completely dependent for everything else other than rent, but you also have a, a growing number of people who say they have no one that they can turn to for help. 
That was, that was, yeah, that was really 39% um, indicated that they did not have anyone that they could count on. That means there's a whole host of individuals who are socially isolated in our city. And if you think about, you know, the things that bring people to, to Toronto, it's around community and neighborhoods, yet so many people are being excluded from that. And so we have um, uh, looked at, at that statistic and, and asked questions about how can we increase the number of community meals that we're providing. The Daily Bread provides about 7,000 community meals every single uh, week in, the, in, in Toronto. And those are great not only to nourish people, but to make sure that we nourish the soul and that there is an opportunity for people who are able to come out and to, and to have some fellowship, which is, uh, which is absolutely critical. Well, who are the people that are so socially isolated? Well, I think by and large, we're talking about uh, many seniors in, in our city who have been shut in, perhaps by health conditions. Uh, perhaps they have lost family and friends. And, um, and that sense of camaraderie has, uh, has been lost. And so they, they are, um, they're isolated. Um, we know that community meal programming helps uh, significantly with that. We also know that um, there are, you know, while that is a difficult situation, there are additional difficult situations in this report where, for example, you know, double the number of people who are working are now coming to food banks than the year prior. That means people who have full-time employment or uh, full-time hours are having to make use of a food bank because the cost of living in the city are just so dramatic. Neil, what what would you like to leave us with? Obviously, we're heading into the holiday season. People are starting to think about uh, where they're going to make their donations and all of that. Well, I guess I I am hopeful that people would, if they're able, consider uh, donating food or or funds to the Daily Bread Food Bank. Um, I think throughout this conversation, Libby, we've we've really talked about um, systemic issues. And, and advocacy. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that people will maybe send an email to their elected official um, and, uh, um, and just say, you know, please implement your poverty reduction strategy. The Canada is way too good to be in this situation. There's no reason why we should have 2 million uh, food bank visits in the city of Toronto. And I'm going to continue to do everything that I can alongside an incredible group of volunteers and food banks all around the city to raise awareness and change the system. Neil Hetherington, CEO of Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Kim in Mississauga phoned in on World COPD Day. Living with COPD. Yeah, I was diagnosed in 2006 with it. Okay. And I smoked for more than 30 years, so that's probably the cause of it. But, uh, yeah, it's getting progressively worse, and uh, it's taken its time. But uh, some of the new drugs that they've got out there have helped. I go, I go once a year for a breathing test to see how... Uh, 
see what, what my capacity is and this sort of thing. My oxygen level right now is great. But, uh, yeah, um, I just got out of the hospital a couple of weeks ago with, uh, I got, I went in there with a respiratory problem and of course with COPD on top of it, I was in there for almost a week. But, uh, and they put me on oxygen and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it, uh, it can, and they say now, okay, fine, you gotta rest up for probably a couple of months to get back to where you were. If I ever do get back to where I was, which I definitely am going to hope, hopefully, and I am trying to do. Joan in Oshawa also phoned about her experience with COPD. I was diagnosed with uh, COPD, um, and uh, with the uh, uh, coughing, I, I was getting pneumonia quite often, and I've had it nine times. Well, wow. in the past. In the past uh, two years, I believe I saw um, the, the doctor that I saw uh, took me in, and I had tests done, and I was given given medication uh, to take, and uh, they didn't really say a lot of anything because there was a backup in the waiting room, and and that so. I've just been, you know, going along trying to uh, just, um, if I find that I can't breathe properly, um, I just rest for for a bit. And then uh, when I feel I can speak without uh, uh, having a lot of problems breathing, then uh, I can, uh, you know, start talking again. Shelley called from Thornhill during our segment on increased food bank use for more Canadians. I just wondered about uh, retail stores that sell food, food products, fresh and canned and frozen, and grocery stores, and what role do they play in providing um, stale-dated goods or getting near stale-dated, especially canned goods and frozen goods, because... When I worked in that industry, it was thrown out. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Lena in Kitchener, who phoned during our segment on bivalent vaccines with Dr. Fahad Razak, the former director of the now-defunct COVID advisory table. I've had all my COVID vaccines. I'm 72 heading to 73. I've had all my COVID vaccines pretty much as soon as I could, including the Moderna bivalent, as soon as it came out within a week of it being um, open. And now I'm hearing about the Pfizer bivalent, which apparently targets what's really going around now much more than Moderna. So once my three months are up, am I eligible? Is it a good idea to get the Pfizer bivalent vaccine as well? You know, the situation with these vaccines is to get the best protection available to you now. There's definitely no agreement that one is better than the other. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.